Welcome on in to Studio 2 on February 29th. I'm Cherry Gregg. Do they have a name for February 29th? Absolutely. What Avi is it? Wolfman Arendt. Leap called, Day. Oh, it's called Leap Day. Imagine you're turning in your radio at 12 o'clock and this is the first time that you're hearing it's Leap Day. You've just been completely ignorant to that mm-hmm. fact until you turned on Studio 2 at noon on February 29th. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. I don't know what I'm talking about. Already on this Thursday, I'm getting warmed up. I'm getting warmed up. You're getting getting warm. You're getting warm. Why don't I warm everyone else up by telling them what's on the show today? Mm -hmm. Uh, In this segment, we're going to talk with Kristen Graham of The Inquirer about um, what's going on in the Philadelphia education space. Specifically, specifically this new contract that the largest union has inked with the district, what that means for teacher and staff retention. So that's where we start today. Then the meat of the show um, mm-hmm. is going to be a conversation with a name you might know, Barbara McQuaid. She's an MSNBC legal analyst, and she's written a new book called Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. So you might have gathered we're going to talk about disinformation and how it is threatening our democracy. Yeah, we'll also talk about some of the cases against former President Donald Trump. Barbara is going to give us a rundown of where things stand so you can keep up because you might not have been following everything. There's just a lot going on. Yeah, you need like a big cork board with string, you know, to figure <laughs> and out. And I say I follow the news, but there's a lot and of you, news to follow. And you yeah. love legal news yeah, specifically. I love it. I love it. I do. And it's still hard to, mm-hmm. to straighten it all out. Barbara's going to help us. Uh, if you want to talk with Barbara, yeah. ask her a question, yeah. you could give us a call, 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. Let's stay in the political realm for our first news roundup story. Cherry, kick us off. Yeah, when uh, you watch the State of the Union next week, um, and one of the responses, you'll see a familiar Philadelphia face. Newly elected Philadelphia City Council member Nicholas O'Rourke will deliver the progressive response to the State of the Union. It'll happen on March 7th. It's a pretty big deal because O'Rourke was just sworn in a few weeks ago after becoming the second candidate Mm. from the Working Families Party to be elected to an at-large seat in our Philadelphia City Council. The party, of course, ousted Republicans from the two minority seats in council. Um, So who is O'Rourke? He's a pastor at a black church in the city. He's in his mid-30s. Very dynamic speaker. Mm -hmm. Avi, I've seen him speak. Um, He knows how to turn a phrase. I'll just say that. Um, He lost his first bid a few years ago for city council and his colleague Kendra Brooks won. She's now uh, doing her second term, but he stayed visible. You you see him at rallies. You could tell the crowds really like him. Um, And so he's expected to, you know, give that response. He's likely going to praise Um, the president on his economic policy, but criticize him on the strategy in Gaza because that's a vulnerability among uh, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. He's getting this national platform Mm -hmm. um, that's been, you know, this this soapbox been given to some pretty big names in the past. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's interesting that he's stepping up. He's someone that has some name recognition here, but I would say even within Philadelphia is not the most Mm -hmm. well-known WFP member. I would say that's Kendra Brooks. Mm -hmm. So it's, interesting that he's ascending this fast to a pretty prominent position. Yeah, I think, you know, having someone from Philadelphia, the biggest city in a swing state, um, shows the importance of of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania in the 2024 election. Um, And it's a big opportunity for him, you know, 
Um, and the, previously, um, the, the folks who have done this progressive response have been backed by the Working Families Party, and they haven't always been members of the Working Families Party. Because so, there are very few electeds. Yeah, they're very elected. So yeah. this is an opportunity for them to put up one of their own that won an election. You mentioned the Middle East. Yeah. Let's go to our second story now. Madeline Dean represents mm-hmm. large chunks of Montgomery and Berks County in the House of Representatives. She issued a pretty stunning statement yesterday Mm. calling for a bilateral ceasefire in Gaza. And this was after a recent trip that she took to the Middle East. Um, The statement, I can't read all of it here. It's Mm -hmm. pretty lengthy. But I will pick out something that she herself Mm -hmm. bolded in this statement. Quote, what is happening is beyond self-defense and unacceptable to me. That is from Madeline Dean a Democratic representative from Montgomery County. Interesting. Uh, obviously, she is not a big enough figure on her own mm-hmm. for this statement to like change everything, but the fact that she's making it, someone in her position, is notable, I think. Yeah, and it's a brave move for um, Congresswoman Dean because Montgomery County, where she represents, has the most uh, Jewish residents of any of Philadelphia's collar counties. They have about 42,200 Jewish households. So that's that, that those are, you know, could impact how people view her, um, her constituency. Um, and I would also, you know, say she wanted to make sure that she made this statement before Ramadan, which is, you know, a very holy time uh, for those who have the Muslim faith. So, you know, it it was a brave moment, a brave uh, step for her. I think it's also important to talk about where Dean fits in the spectrum of Mm -hmm. liberal politics. She's not viewed as like a far left progressive wing figure. Mm -hmm. Her district district is is pretty heavily Democratic, but it's not like an 80-20 type of Mm -hmm. district. And she has really started to make her reputation in Washington as someone who really closely monitors foreign affairs. And in fact, she's on the House Committee mm-hmm. on Foreign Affairs. So her making this statement, I think, is indicative of a rift opening up within the Democratic Party about how the party should respond to what's going on in Gaza right now. Mm-hmm. And again, I would just reiterate that she's not someone that you would necessarily expect to use this language. And the fact that she's using it Mm -hmm. is something to watch because we could see other more middle of the road Democrats follow suit. Yeah. And by the way, um, you know, um, Summer Lee, a Congress member from Pennsylvania, as well as representatives Susan Wilde and Chrissy uh, Houlihan have all called for some sort of pause but it's ceasefire, but it's use of ceasefire, which stands language out. matters exactly. here. It does. Bilateral ceasefire, and again, uh, that yeah, that language it about it's unacceptable to mm-hmm. me. And she really went she took hard a very strong after line. Netanyahu specifically mm-hmm. in her statement, saying that he had basically been dishonest and broken promises mm-hmm. that he had made to American authorities. So again, I, I do think this is a space to watch. Yeah, and um, we're going to move into food. I know this is a category. Well, Vietnam restaurant um, just won the James Beard America's Classics Award. The award honors restaurants that aside from serving great food, they have, quote, timeless appeal and reflect the character of their communities. And I just love the story of the Lai family, which immigrated to the United States 
in the late 1970s with just $30 in their pocket. Five years later, they founded Vietnam Restaurant on 11th Street in Chinatown, and they became one of the city's first Vietnamese restaurants. Their backstory, very memorable. The family had a sandal factory in South Vietnam. It was confiscated by communists, and they were sent to a re-education camp in the forest. Mm. So they came here from that and just built this this um, wonderful restaurant, um, and and they they built it on hard work and entrepreneurship. They have quote lemongrass scented feasts and Philly's crispiest spring rolls. <laughs> Pretty cool because I know you eat in there and, and oh, enjoyed yeah. the food. Yeah, and got, you're kind of like a foodie a little bit. Am I? Do I qualify as a foodie? You love a good lunch. I don't know how why, why we're making this about me, but, <laughs> but I, do, I'm just I like food. Yeah, we all yeah, like yeah, food. Yeah. Um, yeah, Vietnam Restaurant is the one in Chinatown, but yeah. you might have been to Vietnam Cafe in West Philly, owned by the same family. Yeah, and they have this good. wonderful little corner store right by Vietnam Cafe in West Philly called Fuwa, mm-hmm. which I especially love. And I've, I've been to all of them. They're wonderful restaurants. And this is a this is a big time award. Corinne's place in Camden it is, has yeah. won it. John's roast pork in South Philly. One it's, of my favorites, by the way. Yeah. John's roast pork or yeah. Corinne's? John's roast pork. Yeah, no, yeah. they're awesome. Um, yeah. So this is a good list. It's to sort be of on. like a lifetime yeah. achievement type of award. So it's mm-hmm. great that a restaurant here in Philly. Congratulations to the live yeah. family. I went to Vietnam restaurant at, uh, the day mm-hmm. I graduated from college. That was wow. like, oh, yeah, afterwards. What a memory. We, we went down with our families and had a great meal. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, now we got some. Less good food news. Okay. With a heavy heart, mm-hmm. I tell you that after 27 seasons, the food promotion called Dollar Dog Night at Citizens Bank Park in South Philadelphia has been ended by the Philadelphia Phillies. Oh. Truly stunning womp news. Womp. <laughs> <laughs> that your, your response That's my response. Is, womp womp. <laughs> yes. Um, quote, womp womp. <laughs> dash Cherry Greg. Um, oh, yeah. I loved Dollar Dog Night. Basically, mm-hmm. it's what it sounded like. They gave you a hot dog for a dollar. Last year, unfortunately, a lot of people were throwing the hot dogs around. Um, so that did cause a bit of an incident. But they're changing this now to a BOGO night um, where you buy one hot dog for $5 and get another one free, which is 250% more expensive than a dollar. Yeah. So um, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm deeply hurt. I loved Dollar Dog Night. It was not simply a way to get a discounted tube of meat in a bun. It was a reminder that ballpark entertainment used to be affordable and accessible. Because it's, it's not This now. means something it's to me, Cherry. I went, the last time I went to a Phillies game, 50 bucks, okay, for a drink. For a hot dog? I got like a drink and some, some chicken fingers. I mean, it was like $50. You went to the wrong place. You spent $50? I probably, I, it was $50. It was like 47-something. So for one drink? One drink. Now, it was, you know, it was a drink. But, you know, <laughs> my whole point is that and a and a little, you know, salty meal. So, anyway, we it should probably. It was a drink. Got it. Yes. That, that, now, we got to the bottom of why it cost 50, 50 bucks. 50 bucks. Um, we're here with a big Phillies fan in studio, by the way. Yes. I hope I can blow up her spot. As we talk about our newsmaker Mm -hmm. uh, story for today. The school district of Philadelphia and its largest union announced a tentative contract yesterday that includes wage increases and retention bonuses for over 13,000 teachers, counselors, nurses, and other workers throughout the district. This deal comes amidst a national shortage of educators. Superintendent Tony Watlington says he's excited about this Mm -hmm. tentative contract calling schools and highly qualified teachers a primary unit of change. The question is, will this help with retention? Joining us now is the aforementioned Phillies fan, Kristen Graham, education reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer. 
Kristen, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you for having me. And I, I do have to go on record to say I am devastated <laughs> yes at the end of dollar dog night yes. in fact i'm my family phillies text thread is like blowing up like how can they do this to us but um, it's a betrayal Kristen. thank you for starting there yeah, yeah we're gonna prevail yes yes fight through fight yes. through so big news Kristen, for school district of philadelphia teachers this week raise a bonus coming their way what does that look like dollars and cents for teachers and other staff so you know Five percent is not nothing. Um, you know, beginning teachers make a little over fifty thousand dollars. Teachers at the top of the pay scale, um, who are called senior career teachers, basically have you know masters and ten years, and some other qualifications. Um, there are over a hundred thousand, um, and this is really going to help folks. Um, you know, is it enough? We don't know. Obviously, teacher attrition in Philadelphia is incredibly high. Um, you know, compared to the rest of the state, um, and so. I've talked to some teachers who say, yeah, this absolutely makes a difference. And, and some folks who say, like, you know, yes, pay is important, but the intangibles in terms of, you know, classroom conditions, um, you know, are more important. And, you know, they're thinking about leaving. So mm-hmm. um, remains to be seen. But 5% is considerable and, you know, certainly not what we've seen in other contracts recently. And it's a one year yeah, so this is that's this, unusual. Right? This is this is unusual. This was a big surprise. The negotiations really just started. Um, the contract expired. The current contract expires August thirty first. Um, you know, and there's there's a lot going on in the district. Obviously, you know, there's a there's a mayoral transition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's going to be you know potentially some turnover on the school board. All the folks who are on the school board have to reapply for their jobs if they want to stay. Um, so we don't know who's going to be, you know, running the district in terms of governance, um, you know, in the next several months. Um, and so I think a one-year deal makes sense in a lot of ways. It kind of gets us, um, you know, some stability in the district for the new board. Um, but also it is a, an acknowledgement. The PFT has said and the district has said that they really feel like they need to work on teacher retention, we know that resignations and retirements are typically higher in mm. in, um, mm. in contract years. So, you know, this was basically, you know, Superintendent Watlington's administration saying, you know, we want to get this done. We want to get this off the table because yeah. um, we're going into hiring season when um, site selection happens, which is, you know, when when schools say we're hiring for positions X, Y and Z and teachers can apply for them. So, you know might make a, a difference for some folks who are considering leaving, um, but who say, you know, 5% sounds like good a, to me. It's like a placeholder deal that also kind of sends a signal. It absolutely yeah. is. Placeholder, placeholder sends a signal. Um, and the the hiring, the signing bonus, I th- believe teachers will get that um, this year mm-hmm. in June. Um, and then the raise would take effect uh, in September. And so let's talk about the issue of retention. I mean, um, I, I mean, teachers have long been underpaid. That's been a big complaint. So this tries to deal with that. But then as well as overworked, and you said some of the other issues, right, the intangibles, what has been some of the major challenges when it when you talk about recruitment and just keeping the teachers in place? Sure. I mean, I did a story about this recently, talking to a number of teachers who are kind of, you know, love the profession, love the students, but just said, like, you know, it's going to be really hard for me to stay. In some cases, you know, some of them have resigned. You know, one, a brand new teacher who's just killing it and doing a great job. She's like, I don't know if I can stay money wise. Mm. Um, For her, money was the issue. But I think for a lot of other teachers, it's more like 
the intangibles. Mm -hmm. Um, Teaching was always a difficult profession. You know, teaching in Philadelphia, you know, has the challenges of, you know, an underfunded school system and, you know, lots of students who, you know, are living in poverty. Um, And then you had the pandemic and it really got harder because there were lots of mental health challenges with kids and, you know, it's just kind of the the perfect storm. And so, you know, you're hearing from teachers who previously had said, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I'm going to do this for, you know, my career saying like, you know, mm. I need to I need to take a pause and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe leave education altogether or maybe, you know, go to another district where, um, you know, funding isn't so much an issue and, and conditions are more favorable. So and then there's, the pipeline of new teachers looks pretty small in a scary way. Explain yeah. So, so Pennsylvania certified the lowest number of teachers ever um, the last the last year we have data for. Um, and the number of graduates of schools of education is far smaller than the number of um, folks who are leaving the uh, the system. So you know that, that math doesn't wh- that yeah. math doesn't work. And it's you know you look at some things on the state level. You know folks on the state level are, are talking about incentives to recruit mm-hmm. more teachers. Mm-hmm. You know Senator Hughes had a press conference this week saying you know touting that there's a new plan at the state to pay student teachers, which is you know. A big thing because it's it's tough for some folks to take um, you know to take a whole semester and not get paid, but um, the districts are looking at things like you know we're going to pay for your credentialing and um, you know there's just some some things that are that are kind of in the works or you know people are talking about you know should we be talking about a minimum salary you know yeah. there's no proposal for that but you know those are things that that you know kind of education pundits have mentioned as you know what can we do to get more folks. In the profession, it's, it's, it's urgent. Yeah, it's yeah. urgent, and yeah. it's particularly urgent for teachers of color, who we know, you know, are really important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's important for our stu- students to see people who look like them. Um, and statewide, the numbers are really abysmal of mm. teachers of color, black teachers, um, Latinx teachers, and Philadelphia is a little better than the state, um, but still miles great. to go. Yeah. Well, that's Kristen Graham. Thanks for filling us in. Uh, education reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer. We love having you in studio, too. Thanks, Kristen. Happy to be here. And coming up, legal analyst Barbara McQuaid is standing by to talk about how disinformation is sabotaging America. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back, everybody, to Studio Two. Hello, I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. As the November election approaches, there's growing concern about the threat of misinformation and disinformation. We've already seen AI being used in robocalls and to create deep fakes to spread false information. And just this morning, Governor Shapiro announced the creation of a new elections threats task force. Their focus will be to combat misinformation since our battleground state will likely be a prime target of groups trying to influence and to confuse voters. With us in studio now to talk about all of this is Barbara McQuaid. You may know her from MSNBC, where she's a regular legal analyst, and she also has a brand new book. It's called Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. She's also a former U.S. attorney and a law professor at the national championship winning University of Michigan. Barbara McQuaid, welcome to Studio Two. Well, thank you so much, and go blue. Go blue. (laughs) I'm a Wolverines fan. Maybe we'll get into that later. Um, 
Start us off, Cherry. Yeah, so Barbara, you make the case that disinformation is a real threat to American democracy. And very early in the book, you write, disinformation is part of what is sometimes referred to as the authoritarian's playbook. When people hear the word authoritarian, a lot of folks don't really know what that means. So I want you to kind of lay the groundwork by telling us the difference between an authoritarian regime and the democracy that we're sort of used to seeing. Yeah, well, of course, in a democracy, which we live in, we love, and I think sometimes take for granted, Mm -hmm. the people have the power. We have the power of the vote, which means we can elect the people and the policies that we want to use for governing. Authoritarianism is the opposite of that. That is one leader who decides what the rules are. And, you know, we're not going to go from a democracy to an authoritarian regime Mm -hmm. overnight. But when we lose our power to cast ballots, we are losing power to control our democracy. And so, you know, just an example of how uh, disinformation is harming our democracy. After 2020, there were all kinds of false claims of a stolen election. They've all been debunked. Mm -hmm. The lawsuits all failed. The audits all failed. And yet, those claims of election fraud have been used in a number of states to create laws making it harder to vote this time around. So in Georgia and Texas and Florida and other places, it will be more difficult for people, mostly people of color, students, lower socioeconomic groups, Native Americans, to be able to get to the polls and cast their ballots. And so all of that is using disinformation to create some sort of problem that we're trying to solve, but also creating collateral consequences that will limit the ability to change the status quo when it comes to leadership in our country. So it's like a whittling away. Mm -hmm. A slow erosion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you say in the book, the slow erosion of democratic norms is like the life cycle of leaves on a tree. Changes are invisible from one moment to the next until one day they wither and die. So what does our tree look like right now? What's the shade of our tree? Can I just first say I'm so pleased that you pulled out that let language because I am not one for flowery language. I'm usually like, you know, noun verb. And that's the one uh, indulgence I made. You so allowed yourself thank to you. stretch a little bit. Yeah, there. I so noticed that. Yes. Not, I, thank you. You're, you're the one. Um, you know, I, I, I think our, 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 our trees are uh, not dead. They're not dying. But, you know, they're, they're, they're not as robust green as we might like them to be. Yeah. And that is because of these things that we are seeing. You know, there's something like, you know, fully a third of the electorate who believes the election was stolen just last weekend at the CPAC conference. Steve mm. Bannon led a group in a chant of Trump won, Trump won, Trump won, and people repeated that. But I also think there are those who have these authoritarian dreams who know better. They don't believe the election was stolen, but they're willing to say it and keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it to just bully their way to the agenda that they want to have for political power. They don't believe they can win in a fair election. So Mm -hmm. through gerrymandering and through disinformation and through voter suppression, they are willing to seize power and give up democracy. And I think the people who go willingly go along with this con are true are, are choosing tribe over truth so you said that authoritarian leaders use disinformation that as this tactic to gain this power and that american politicians are sort of borrowing from this playbook i want you to go through some of the plays because you know you, you have folks who've fallen victim to the disinformation 
but they may not know how or what plays are being used against them. Yeah, so I did a lot of research and read a lot of books about history, you know, yeah. what, what Hitler used, what Mussolini used, and we really are seeing the same tactics today. They might be delivered through a slightly different mechanism with social media and cable television, but it's really some of the same techniques that we have seen uh, for, for throughout history. So I'll name just three of them. Um, one is, uh, as Hitler described in Mein Kampf, you need simple repeatable phrases. Nothing can be too simple for an audience. They need You need to really dumb it down and make it simple. And so phrases like stop the steal fit into this. Simple, repeatable phrases, and people begin to hear it not only from the original source, but other people repeating it, which gives it the air of credibility. Another thing that Hitler wrote about in Mein Kampf, of course, is if you're going to lie, a big lie is ironically more mm-hmm. believable than a little lie because all of us lie from time to time about little things out of kindness. You know, my husband might say to me, for example, uh, no, dear, that dress doesn't make you look fat. <laughs> um, and he's saying it from a place of love and mm-hmm. a place of kindness. And we all do that. But what Hitler wrote is that most people could not imagine that someone would have the audacity to lie about something of great significance. And so because our minds just won't go there, when we hear something like a stolen election, we think, well, who would make that up? You can't possibly, you know, people would figure that out. You can't possibly um, be lying about that. So that's a, a second technique. And then the third one is when we see in uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia, which is something that gets described as the fog of unknowability, this mm. idea that everything is PR and there's no such thing as truth. In fact, truth is for suckers. If you care about integrity and truth and honor, you're so naive. What really matters is choosing a leader who is strong and who shares your values. Um, you know, democracy is not the end game. Uh, wealth and prosperity is the end game. And so choose the person who shares your values and forget about all this other stuff about truth and honor and integrity. And of course, those things are all so undermining to our ideals of America and the institutions of democracy that protect us from people who want to amass power. Wow. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with MSNBC legal analyst Barbara McQuaid. We're talking right now about her new book, Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. You can submit a question or comment to studio2 at whyy.org. You can also pick up the phone and call us 888-477-9499. Barbara, you were talking there about history. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned in the book, disinformation is very old. You mentioned the Trojan horse, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so how can we tell that what we're living through now in America is extraordinary and urgent, given that this problem has been with us probably since humans have been forming societies? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, propaganda has certainly been part of every war campaign, every political movement. But I think what's different now are two things. One is um, technology and social media have created... Um, the ability to create falsehoods and to spread them to millions of people at the push of a button instantly. And so there was a time when you had to rely on word of mouth or leaflets or planting a story in an international newspaper and hoping that it made its way uh, into the homeland. And so that's one thing that's different. With anonymous accounts online, people can be fooled into believing a credible source is saying something when they haven't said that thing at all through artificial intelligence. You mentioned the robocalls making a, a voice that sounded like Joe Biden urging voters to stay home on election day when, in mm-hmm. fact, that was just created uh, by someone in a, in, you know, in a sound booth somewhere. 
Um, we know from Robert Mueller's report about Russian inter- election interference um, some very important things. I think so often his report gets waved off as all about Donald Trump and the campaign. But of course, it was actually all about Russia. And what it talks about in there um, is something I assigned to my students in my national security course. He describes social media accounts created by Russians, uh, something called the Internet Research Agency, that looked like real accounts. And they were very patient and developed followers over months and months and months leading up to the 2016 election. There were accounts with names like Blacktivist that looked like a mainstream grassroots black activist who said things that many people would agree with and as a result amassed many followers leading up to the election. And then just before the election said things like, Hillary Clinton has never done anything for the black community. Mm. We should not do anything for her. In fact, we should send her an important message and stay home and not vote. Now, we'll never know what impact that may have had on voters, but imagine that wasn't the only one. There were hundreds of these kinds of accounts directing people and influencing people. And it wasn't just on uh, the Democratic side. There were also accounts with names like Heart of Texas and Tennessee GOP who were similarly pushing and influencing and trying to divide people on the Republican side. So that's technology in a nutshell. I think the other thing that makes this moment different is our extreme polarization in politics, really different from anything we've seen in American history before, with this idea that we are going to push um, to opposite sides instead of trying to unite people to common ground. Um, Ezra Klein has a great book on this called Why We're So Polarized. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he posits is that since about the mid-90s, when Newt Gingrich came to power, he realized that the power really was in pushing us to our extremes and um, trying to energize the base as opposed to coming back to the middle and trying to find common ground and being a uniter and not a divider and some of the things we talked about back in those days. Um, Because if we mobilize the base and we get them angry and we let them believe that this election is an existential threat, uh, we can encourage them to come and turn out. Um, Which ironically is is a Democratic strategy. I mean, not Democratic, Mm -hmm. big D, but it's a strategy to win elections. So we're being polarized, by your argument, from people pursuing electoral wins within our democratic system. I mean, that's uh, kind of hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah, and I think you know one of the things about that is certainly it mobilizes voters, but it doesn't leave a lot of room in the middle for nuance mm-hmm. or for uh, shades of gray or for compromise. We are now in a society where we demand political purity. And if you look on social media, you know, people won't say that's actually a complicated issue. I'm not sure I agree with everything you mm-hmm. say. You know, it's pithy sound bites and insults against the other side and a suggestion that you have to be all, you know, blue team or all red team and people will virtue signal to let people know which team they're on. You know, for example, one of the things I talk about in the book mm-hmm. that I find so interesting, I did a lot of reading on this because I was so confused yeah. by it for so long, is the use of the term Democrat Party by the right, you know, mm-hmm. the far right mega extremists. Certainly they know better. Um, certainly they know, like, it's not insulting to people who are Democrats. In fact, if anything, Democrats think it just sounds sort of stupid. So why do they do it? They do it to signal to far right members of the party that we're part of the team. And mm. if you want to be part of the team, you should say this too. And so it, it leaves us with these um, sort of extreme bitter rivalries with no room for compromise, no room for nuance. And that's, of course, how we advance as a society. You know, we've got challenges at our border with immigration. But if uh, all we do is yell about how the other side is evil and wrong, we're never going to uh, advance uh, our, our policies there. And, you know, this idea that we had perhaps the outline in the blueprint 
of some uh, legislation that might help us to at least reduce the challenge there. Yeah. And we saw you know, Donald Trump say, I'd rather have no solution because the chaos is what makes me go. Yeah, and one of the things you say is the power, when power is acquired through disinformation, coups can eventually be accomplished without bloodshed. Disinformation operations turn us on ourselves. You talked about the violence that has erupted because of disinformation and not just in form of in the form of what we've seen on January 6th, but in other ways. I want you to talk about how it's really causing people and even putting a chilling effect on decision making within government. Yeah, I think that's right. We have seen a number of people, especially in local offices, leave their jobs. Um, uh, boards of education, health officials leaving because they receive so many threats. Um, Al Schmidt here in Philadelphia, who was an election official yeah. with all of the threats he received, a Republican, just for counting the vote correctly and making sure that he was being honorable, uh, came under attack. And so when people are demonized as enemies of democracy, enemies of the people, and all of these kinds of things, it gives others not just permission, but an expectation that they will fight back through violence. You know, the the hammer attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, uh, the plot against Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer to kidnap her. There was an you know armed protesters outside the home of the Secretary of State of my state of Michigan for simply doing her job to certify the outcome of the election. Um, it is incredibly dangerous, and I, I think it does have that effect of chilling people from decision-making and discouraging good people of honor from seeking or staying in public office. So what are some solutions? And you actually talk about this, and, and some of them I feel like are really, really doable. Yeah, um, I do. Some are at the governmental level, and some of them are really just at the individual level. So just a couple things at the governmental level. I think we have allowed the Internet and social media to grow completely unchecked, and in some ways it's been wonderful. The Communications Decency Act um, section 230 of 1996 uh, is sometimes referred to as the 26 words that invented the internet yeah. because it removed legal liability from um, social media platforms and allowed them to grow unchecked. In some ways, it's been wonderful. You know, we can connect with people around the world on social media, but it has also allowed all of uh, this anonymity online, all of these manipulative algorithms online, all of this disinformation that can be used to exploit us um, as we communicate with people online. So I think there's some simple things that we can do, though, that would not run afoul of the First Amendment. One is to regulate the algorithms. There is this Facebook whistleblower named Francis Haugens who testified that it's not the content, it's the algorithms that are really driving a lot of the um, problems online. She said that at Facebook they had created algorithms that was designed to push content to us that would generate outrage. Because the more outraged we are, the more likely we are to stay online and to engage and to respond. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be, and, and, and of course that leads to profits when people are online longer. Um, but we could control the algorithms. We could prohibit algorithms designed for the purpose of generating outrage, or we could at least require disclosure of the algorithms so that people at least know they're being manipulated. Uh, paid ad content for political ads online is not currently required on social media the way it is on television and radio. You know, when you get radio ads, people say, this is Joe Biden and I approve this ad. That doesn't exist on social media. And so you could have something that, you know, is being paid for by Russia or some special interest. And it's 
Instead, they call themselves the red, red, white, and blue grandmothers of America, and we don't know any better. So those are some things at the governmental level. But we can also do some things, I think, at in the individual level. One is we can educate ourselves yeah. about how to detect disinformation. And there are a lot of great programs out there. I cite some in the book. Um, things like um, not believing the headline and reading the story before you pass it on, or looking for a second source of information before you believe something to be true. If you see data, looking at how how large was the sample size? Was it three or three million? Because that can make a difference. So there are a number of things we can do. And finally, resisting the urge to pile on and, and virtue signal yourself and respect nuance and don't engage in the snark just to own your opponent. Wow. We are speaking with Barbara McQuaid about her new book, Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. If you want to join the conversation, um, email us, studio2 at whyy.org, or call us, 888-477-9499. We're about to go to a break, but I'm going to read in a question from Olga, and maybe you can elaborate after the break, Barbara who wants to know, does teaching media literacy help counter misinformation? Can you actually teach that? Because you just alluded to the possibility. And of course, it makes me think sometimes about anti-drug education, which had mixed mm-hmm. results at best. Sometimes you can have great intent, but it's really hard to educate yourself out of a problem. Um, so let's address that after the break. You're listening to Studio 2 on WHYY. More with Barbara McQuaid coming up. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Oh, how about that? Welcome back to Studio 2, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. We are speaking with Barbara McQuaid about her new book, Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. She's an MSNBC legal analyst and former U.S. attorney. We're also going to discuss the criminal and civil cases facing former President Trump, including yesterday's news that the Supreme Court will hear Trump's immunity claim in the election interference case, but not until April 22nd. Let's raise some questions about the likelihood of prosecuting this case before the election. Also taking your questions and comments, studio2 at whyy.org. Call us, 888-477-9499. Before the break, I mentioned that question from Olga about, you know, can we really teach media literacy? Can you teach people to identify disinformation? I mean... Do you feel optimistic about that? I do. Actually, Olga's uh, question is a very good one. I think media literacy is one of the most important things we can do. And I've actually learned since writing the book from people who have raised with me, there are a number of programs out there Mm -hmm. that are being used already for media literacy. In fact, in Finland, which has been bombarded with disinformation for decades from Russia, their neighbor, they have begun teaching media literacy to children in their schools with great result. And so... Um, you know, helping people to process what is not plausible, to be skeptical, to understand data, to understand statistics, to look
look for a second source, I think can be very valuable. So introducing it in schools is great, but of course reaching the rest of us mm. who are out of school yes. is also challenging. But I think we can do that too through you know civic organizations and online delivery, and there are a lot of ways we can do that. Can I ask you one more thing, sorry, mm-hmm. before we get to those cases, because I just have to acknowledge that you're going to be on Here and Now coming up. There's a oh, segment yeah. featuring you um, in this book coming up on Here and Now, and it does make me think about the fact that we always think Everyone else is in an echo chamber, but maybe we're in our own echo chamber, too, hearing those same voices. And of course, we love your voice. But how do we know if we're hearing too much of the same stuff over and over again? And how do we break out of that? One of the things I think we have to do is make a commitment to listening to other voices. So, Mm. uh, you know, the the BBC, um, conservative news media. Uh, looking for lots of sources, and I think the, are you uh, omnivorous, sort of in your? I, I am. I, yeah. I follow lots of people on social media, even people with whom I strongly disagree. Um, I try to watch other news outlets, yeah. um, but um, I also think one of the most important things we can do is get out of our bubbles and talk to real people yeah. in the real world, yes. which is something we've really lost in the era of online work and COVID. Um, is it's that Robert Putnam bowling alone yes, problem? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So in the workplace, where we see real people, or in faith communities, in schools. Uh, where we can meet real people and realize we have far more in common than we have differences. You know, we might disagree about yeah. some things, but we share our humanity and our hopes and dreams. And, and yeah. thank you for being and a have good more sport conversations about that question, too. And have more yeah. conversations, yeah. Um, like the one we're even having today. And so we want to talk a little bit about the, the, the different cases against former President Donald Trump. Um, since you're a legal analyst, we're going to use some of your legal mind right now. And we want to start with the Supreme Court's decision to push off hearing um Former President Trump's immunity claim, giving him and what many say a small win because of the delay. Lay that out. And yeah. what are some of the advantages that are gained by delaying the hearing of the case? Yes. So I think the decision yesterday to hear the case on April 22nd, I would not call a win or a loss for Donald Trump, but I would call it a tie. Mm. So the worst thing that could have happened for Donald Trump would be a, a, a summary uh, affirming decision of the lower court and sending it back right away. Like today it's back in court. That Mm -hmm. could have been a real win for Jack Smith. Um, A real win for Donald Trump, I think, would have been to take it in the normal course, which is to say, we are granting your motion for stay. And now you have 90 days, the normal course, Mm -hmm. to file your writ for petition of certiorari. And then we'll consider it and likely not hear it until next term in October, which would certainly have been after the election. I think instead they have set an expedited briefing and hearing schedule. April 28th is a li- or 22nd is a little late there, mm. but I think there is time if they decide the case this term, you know, likely in June, that the, the case could proceed probably in the fall and be completed in time for the election. But there's not much uh, padding is, in there. Yeah, <laughs> that so, is tight, 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 tight. Well, that brings up my question, which is which of these cases, and I guess I'll review them quickly. They got the case in Georgia. You got the January 6th case, the documents case, the Manhattan hush money case. Um, which of these do you think is most likely to impact the election? And perhaps wrapped up in that, which is the most likely to render some sort of judgment before then? Yeah, I think the one we're talking about, you know, the Manhattan DA's case mm-hmm. for the payment of hush money looks like it's going to go to trial March 25th. That appears to be all systems go. So that may be the one that goes first, probably will be. And it's a serious case. It's about falsifying business records to conceal hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, the porn star who made allegations about an extramarital affair on the eve of uh, the 2016 election when the Access Hollywood tape had come out uh, portraying Donald Trump in a bad light. Those are the allegations in that case. However, 
I think even with a conviction, prison time is unlikely, and I think his supporters will shrug it off in the same way they have the E. Jean Carroll defamation case and the AG's fraud case. So I do think that this election interference case is the one that could impact the the election because it would mean that a jury of 12 people has declared that what Donald Trump did in 2020 was a crime, was an effort to overturn democracy and defraud the United States um, and interfere with the rights of people to vote. That's that's a monster. Mm, And although there are some who will never um, betray their loyalty to Donald Trump, I think for you know, people of good faith who might be moderate swing voters have to view that in a very serious way. And I think that could have some impact on the outcome of the election. I got to ask you about this Georgia case, which has spent a couple of weeks in the headlines. Um, you know, it was considered to be a pretty strong case initially. And now we're we've all been distracted by Fonnie Willis, um, the district attorney of Fulton County down there. But relationship with a special prosecutor there. How has this case shifted um, given this distraction? Yeah, so I think this is one of those places where you have to think that two things can be true at the same time. One is Fonnie Willis made an enormous lapse of judgment by getting in what she now has admitted as a a romantic relationship with one of the prosecutors in her office. As her... Uh, uh, as the superior and and uh, of this uh, Nathan Wade, this lawyer in her office, she pays him, she supervises him. I think she has an ethical problem on her hands. However, that has nothing to do with the guilt or innocence of Donald Trump and his co-defendants. And I think the only theory they're pursuing here is that she somehow you know, filed these charges so that she could hire Nathan Wade so that she could benefit from the money that she's paying him by taking lavish vacations. That has already been dispelled by the testimony, and there's no evidence to support that. So I'm surprised the judge has allowed this sideshow to go along for as long as it has. Um, But I think at the end of the day, I've not seen any evidence that would disqualify her from the case, because although she has a conflict of interest, that is in her role as a manager of her office, not in her role uh, as the prosecutor of defendants in this case. There's nothing about these allegations that affect their right to a fair trial. And just a reminder of these allegations, they were, uh, you know, former President Trump directly interfering in the Georgia election. Absolutely. And so I think ultimately um, this case will go on, but I think she has been tainted in terms of her own credibility. And I think it gives a talking point to Trump and his supporters that, you know, this is who uh, people who are not thinking this through um, precisely or methodically, but are just thinking about it as lumping it all together that, you know, she's she's bad, she's dishonest, and therefore the whole case is is dishonest. Um, but that, of course, I don't think is the way to think about it. I think to think about it in terms of has she engaged in an ethical lapse? Yes. And I think that she will have to deal with that with ethical authorities. But is this case in any way t- tarnished? And the answer is no. We haven't even seen any of the evidence in this case. Yeah. And so uh, I, I remain uh, hopeful that the case will proceed and this motion will be denied to dismiss. But she'll have to deal with her own ethical fallout on her own. Um you know, there's a natural lag in radio programs, so some of our comments are from our prior segment, but I did mm-hmm. want to read this one from uh, Terry. This is an email. Isn't disinformation ingrained in U.S. culture? We've had disinformation about race, sex, indigenous people, war, and peace. It's been used against other countries, even overthrowing democratic governments. Um, and you, you mentioned some of that in the book. I also want to bring in this comment from Mike as we you know, roll down here, because we talked about talking with people who you might disagree with. And I think Mike might fall to this category for you. Mike says, doesn't the close margin of the 2020 election and the unprecedented amount of mail-in ballots with an imperfect process at least create a reasonable doubt about the outcome? Not everything is conspiracy theories. What would you say to Mike? 
Yeah, Mike, that's a great question. And, you know, we do have a process for uh, determining whether elections are accurate and fair. We have audit processes. We have lawsuits. And all of those were undertaken, you know, recounts in areas where uh, the vote was close. And in all of those, uh, Joe Biden won and Donald Trump lost. And I don't think there is room to suggest anything different. And so we've been down that road and, and it's 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 over. In Michigan, there was a lawsuit to challenge the outcome of the election. And a judge there dismissed the case and even sanctioned the lawyers for after all the recounts and all the certification continuing to allege that the election was stolen. And she said in her opinion, why she was sanctioning the lawyers was the fact that it appeared to her that the purpose of their lawsuit was not to genuinely contest the outcome because that had long been decided, but to sow doubt in the public that the election had been unfair. And just the other day, the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed her decision for those sanctions. And so I think we need to recognize that Trump did not win. Um, There was a fair process for recounting and lawsuits and challenges, and those were completed and Trump lost and Joe Biden won. And so, um, Mike, we can agree about lots of things, but that is one that has been settled. I just want to thank Mike for the the comment and the question, too, because, you know, we're talking about building bridges with people. I think it Mm -hmm. takes some guts to ask a question like this, knowing that you're going to get a disagreed response. And so thanks, Mike, for for reaching out. And as we get ready to wrap up, we only have about a minute, but I I just want to talk about the the spin factor here. We didn't get a chance to go over the other cases that are pending, but what will that spin look and how does that tie uh, to the idea of disinformation as we wrap up? We have about a minute. We've heard Donald Trump refer to the prosecutions against him as witch hunts and hoaxes. He has accused special counsel Jack Smith Smith of engaging in election interference, being a thug prosecutor. He has called Judge Tanya Chutkin in Washington, D.C., someone who's engaging in election interference. And as a result, we've seen them be the victims of threats and swatting and other kinds of things. And so um, we're fortunate we have public servants who are willing to persevere through those things. But I think they're designed to give, they're not going to be effective in court, but I think they are designed to give his supporters uh, some uh, belief and something to hang their hat on mm-hmm. that they should continue to support him. Wow. Well, thank you so much for covering all of that in rapid yes. time, rapid fire time. Thank you, Barbara McQuaid. And I want to point out one of our listeners on Twitter slash X says, I want you to know that I reserved a spot for your book through the library <laughs> so in cool. King County, Washington. I am 101 on the list. And by the way, you're going to be at the Free Library of Philadelphia tonight at 730. Thank you so much, Barbara McQuaid. Thanks very much for having me. Barbara McQuaid is an MSNBC legal analyst, author of the new book, Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. Yeah, we're so happy to have you here on Leap Day. And by the way, Mm -hmm. happy birthday to all the leaplings out here. We only get to say that to you technically once every four years. So today is your day. Job rule, this is for you. enjoy it. And so that wraps up our show. (laughs) Thank you so much to our producers, Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Joan Isabella is our audio general manager from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Cherry Gregg. Happy Leap Day birthday to Flyers legend Simone Gagne as well. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. Thanks for joining us. We will see you next week in the month of March.